the longing for reconnection that drives people to do all kinds of interesting things is a instinct to come back into relationship with the rest of life or with the, the others. And they want that too. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 26 of Medicine Stories. On this podcast, we explore the mythic journeys we undertake when coming to know ourselves through interviews with herbalists, story keepers, ancestral listeners, consciousness explorers, earth dreamers, and other wise folk. Story is medicine, magic is real, and healing is open-ended and endless. I'm your host, Amber Magnolia Hill, and today I am joined by Daniel Four. He's the author of Ancestral Medicine. And before I get into more of what we talk about in Daniel's bio, I wanted to share a little ancestral story of my own. And I was inspired to share this by one part of the conversation that we have today, um, in which Daniel and I talk about the interweaving of ritual, genealogical research, and healing. And I've talked a number of times on the show about my right ancestors, W-R-I-G-H-T. These are my father's mother's people. And I knew my grandma. We were quite close. She died four years ago. Um, and I knew both of her parents, too. I mean, how incredibly lucky to not only know any of one's great-grandparents, but to know them as a couple, to know them together. And they were both gone by the time I was, I think, 10. Um, so I didn't have a whole lot of time with them, but I, I love that I knew them. And my dad was very close to them, especially his grandma. And I grew up always hearing stories about them. I've told a couple of those stories on this podcast. But one that I have not shared is that when I was first getting interested in ancestry. This was about in 2010. Um, I was given the task um, by Atava Garcia. I think there's a second name in her name. I think she has three names. I'm sorry, Atava, that I'm not thinking about it right now. Um, of Ancestral Apothecary. We did some Skype sessions. I should really have Atava on here. And she she gave me the task to write out an ancestral story. I think it, you know, it was something that we we came up with together. I was telling her about the rites and about the story specifically of my great grandparents, the ones I knew, uh, Lewis and Gladys were their names, of how their firstborn died and of his burial. Um, he was six weeks old. This was in Arkansas. He was born in January, died in February, and my dad had always told me this story of how it was pouring rain that day, and they they hitched up their mules, and um, I forget what it's called, a buckboard wagon, I think he called it, and had the tiny little coffin back there and made their way to the cemetery, and it was raining so hard and was so muddy and such tough going that the mules gave out but luckily that happened near one of my great-grandparents siblings and his my, my great-grandma Gladys her brother Lone and his wife Vestal lived near there there's two Vestals in my 
family. Isn't that interesting? Like on different sides, Lone and Vestal, like what a name for these, for this couple. Um, and so they borrowed their mules and they made it to the cemetery. And as they were, as they were digging the grave, the walls just kept collapsing in on them. And, and that's the story. It's no dramatic thing happened, but like how awful, how awful your six week old dies and you have this horrible day just trying to get your beloved child in the ground. And of course, for many of our ancestors, um, children died much more frequently than they do today. But so he was their first, he was their firstborn, And my grandma was born, I think a year later, and then they moved out to California and had three more kids. And I just love that my dad would talk about Cletus and would keep him alive. Um, and gosh, I wish I had talked to my great grandparents about him and heard the story from their perspective. But the story of the day he was buried always stuck with me. And so with Atava's guidance, um, I wrote it out. I fictionalized it. This is something that Lara Valeda Vest and I talked about in episode seven. Uh, you know, engaging, engaging the ancestors through ritual and through art and through ritual art as this was. And we talked about this idea that I got from Sandra Easter and her book, Jung and the Ancestors, which certainly comes from other traditions. She specifically names Vine Deloria as um, speaking about this idea that the ancestors live in the present as well. And Daniel and I talk about this today. But so I wrote the story in the present tense, even though it was something that happened in the past. And it was very healing to write it. And of course, I had to embellish, I had to make certain things up. What I just told you is all that I know. And, um, but of course, I based my embellishments on what I do know of those people and of the time they lived in, of the place they lived in, and of human suffering and emotions and love. And it was really, it just felt so good to write it and to honor Cletus and my great grandparents. And um, what I, and I think this part came from Atava too. So my dad came to visit around that time and me and him and my now 12 year old who was four at that time, um, we stood outside under this giant cedar tree that was in the yard of my rental at the time. And I read the story to them. And then we rolled it up and we buried it under the tree. And it was kind of our way of, of honoring them and of saying goodbye. Of like, It felt like we were kind of participating in Cletus's burial as well by burying this, this scroll that, um, that contained this story. And I've told this story before on the podcast in that episode seven of having a dream that there was a scroll in my, in my bones. And then it had my great-grandfather Lewis's father's name on it when I pulled the scroll out of the bone in my uh, right wrist. William Newton Wright was his name. So <laughs> in so many ways, I feel like that act of reverence and honoring and telling a story from my ancestral past and sharing it with people because I did then go and put it on my blog Um and, you know, it actually still is on my blog, so I'll put a link to it in the show notes if anyone's interested. But I, the rights for me come up over and over again. And then, yeah, that dream, that dream where the scrolls are in my bones, that dream came 
after I did that. And that dream empowered me so strongly to continue looking for my ancestors and following this path and speaking about ancestry and encouraging other people to do it. And this was before it was as popular as it is now, not way before, you know, there's some like diehard genealogy nerds who've been doing this for decades. Um, I'm pretty new to the game myself, but it was before people were really talking about it like they are now online. And I just feel like for me, these, the rights who also I like last year figured out, I went farther and farther back on ancestry.com and traced the rights to the Scottish Highlands. And I always felt like that was somewhere in my DNA. I mean, every time I see photos of the Scottish Highlands, it's just like, oh, it hits me in such a deep place. Um, And of course, it's that line. Of course, it's that line that takes me back there. Um, So I feel like the rights have somewhat been like my guides, my guides on my personal ancestral path. And it ties into the story that Daniel shares um, about about getting some headstones for his, I believe, great-grandparents who didn't have any, and then how that side of his ancestry immediately opened up for him. When before that, there had been a lot of roadblocks and dead ends. So, yeah, that's my story. Thank you, Cletus, for being here for six weeks, and thank you, Grandpa and Granny Wright, for, uh, for loving me, for loving my dad, and for loving my grandma as good as you did. Such good, simple folk they were, and I miss them. Um, when Daniel was telling, is telling his story that you will hear briefly coming up, um, he says that when, when they were doing like this ritual as they put the headstones in or visited the graves after the headstones were put up, that he was trying not to weird out family too much, but they were also kind of into it. That's exactly how I felt about my dad and even my four-year-old daughter as we were reading this story and burying this piece of paper that, you know, I was really worried. My dad would be like, what are we doing? But he was so into it. And I know that a lot of people find that, that family members that they think might be a little weirded out are usually really honored and happy to be a part of this ritual for their ancestors and for their family and people. Um, Daniel says, the choice to acknowledge them somehow opened up the knowledge that was previously inaccessible to me. I think many of you have found that or will find that on your own ancestral journeys. So um, Daniel and I, man, this conversation is dense in the best way. It's dense in the way that like every sentence out of Daniel's mouth is incredibly profound and meaningful. Um, So I had a hard time writing out notes and like, what exactly do we talk about that deserves to be written in the show notes here? And that's something I always struggle with. Try not to make them too long, but I do like to give people a little preview of what we, what we talk about. So in this interview, we talk about the story of Daniel's first ancestral connection and the healing that followed, how your body is your ancestor altar The ancestors are the collective wisdom of our species in all its beauty and trauma. Uh, How time collapses when in communion with the ancestors, which is why I wrote that story in the uh, present tense. Not all of the dead are equally well. 
I talk about the deeply embedded alcoholism in my father line. And Daniel gives me this like framework as addiction as the hunger of the dead moving through the bodies of the living and the act of taking the substance as a form of ancestral communion, which just, man, resonates so strong with my dad's alcoholism. Oh, we talk about how there are very few personal problems, and this gets into a look at unmetabolized ancestral pain and systemic injustice. The dead can change. Ancestral forgetting as a function of the damage wrought by colonialism. We don't arrive at healing by exiling those who commit harm. An approach for white folks wishing to address their oppressive, colonizing, slave-owning ancestral legacy rather than ignoring it or living in perpetual guilt over it. The role of the ancestors in social and earth justice. Uh, Synchronicity. They are shaking us awake in the burning house. The growing sense of urgency coming to us from the ancestors at this pivotal point in human history. The earth is the repository of ancestral wisdom. The dead are in the earth, and the ancestors are animating the earth that is our bodies in this ongoing recycling of spirit and matter, Um, approaching activism in a more ritual-oriented way. When a child is a returning of an ancestral lineage, mothering is my main form of ancestral reverence and remembering that our children are the future ancestors of our further descendants. Our souls that die suddenly lost in limbo, And I asked Daniel a vulnerable question about my mom who died in a car accident in November 2015. Daniel says, and I couldn't agree more, that the most important way that we prepare for death is to be ethical and kind. And we close by talking about animism. Living humans are just one kind of person and coming into relationship with the wider web of being. So Daniel's, um, one of his students, Darla Antoine, she was on, I think it was episode 19 of the show, and she's going to be, she's coming back. She's going to be the first ever return guest on the next episode in which we are going to talk about anti-racist genealogical research. I'm really excited for that. I did her online course about it, and I just, as someone who is almost 100% of European ancestry, Um, Ancestry.com and other genealogical resources really are set up to work for me and for other white folks. And I have felt poorly resourced to guide people of color and people of non-European descent um, into their own genealogical research. But Darla is there and she's got it dialed in and we're going to be talking about it. So please, um, please listen to that one. It's for white folks as well as people of color. It's for everyone. So Daniel is a teacher and practitioner of practical animism who specializes in ancestral and family healing and in helping folks learn to relate well with the rest of the natural world. His focus on the ancestors sources from his training as a doctor of psychology and licensed marriage and family therapist, from the guidance of his teachers in earth-honoring traditions, and from two decades of implementing the teachings of ancestor reverence in his own life. Since 2005, he's guided hundreds of ancestor trainings, rituals, and talks throughout the United States and helped many others to reconnect with their family ancestors through personal sessions. He is the author of Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing. 
And on Patreon, um, we're going to be giving away a copy of that book. So that's at patreon.com slash medicine stories. As always, at the $2 a month level, um, check it out there if you are interested in winning a copy of this really, really beautiful and meaningful book. Um, I absolutely loved reading it. And I hope that you absolutely love this interview with Daniel Four. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. I'm really, really glad to have you here. I had many, many listeners request your presence. So I'm happy to deliver That's you. That's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. Cheers. <laughs> Um, and of course, you had Darla Antoine on the podcast before who studied with you and just got a huge response to that episode. Um, yeah, she's great. Yeah, and as I'm, I'm sure you know, people are really hungry. They're hungry for their ancestors. It's, um, you know, just, I don't know, an exciting time to be talking about this. It's true. Uh, there is a kind of intense job security in what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know where to start, but yeah, I, uh, I maybe I'll just say a little bit about you know how I, how I get, got into all this. Sure, please. So, uh, so I wasn't raised with any of it. I sought out as a teenager shamanism and psychoactive things, and started crashing around with pagan ritual stuff and books, and uh, it was great. And then I, I chaotic but useful and. At age 17, I connected with teachers, which was super helpful to get a framework early on for relating with the animal and plant spirits and ancestors even. And uh, that was over 20 years ago. I'm 40, 40 now. And um, I did a PhD in psychology, became a therapist in there and spent the last 20 years working with different teachers, different systems, with ritual, ceremony, all that. So it's been a passion for me. And I've had the good fortune to train some different indigenous people and I'm a practitioner of West African Ifa, Orisha tradition. So I go back and forth to Nigeria to work with elders there. But the ancestor work isn't sourcing from just one of those systems per se. And I, it's not like I ripped it off from some system and then changed the labels and then said, look, I made made this up. It really is a um, just connecting some dots about cross-cultural patterns in ancestor reverence and ritual. And also a little bit the way the Spirit showed me to put it together. And what I learned from my own experience as a settler, colonialist, American of German, English, Irish ancestry, trying to find a sense of belonging without being too terribly offensive to native people or other people and working with my own ancestors of blood and engaging uh, with their support from a awareness of my own cultural position has that's been really good. It's been really grounding. And I see how many other people are crashing around with that same problem, like a real soul level longing to the earth and the spirits and wanting to get reconnected, wanting to do the right thing, but there's no map for it because there's been so much loss and trouble, especially in the last thousand years or so. So that's a little bit. I don't want to monologue it too much, but uh, I, I will say a last thing that in the last 
decade especially, my overall approach to ritual, which is animist or earth honoring, and has uh, come to include a specialization in work with blood lineage ancestors. So I certainly don't see them as the entirety of the path, but I have come to see work at least a bit with one's ancestors of blood and of body as being a really foundational and uh, grounding, orienting, fortifying type of focus for a period of time. If you're willing, I would love to hear more about this story that you briefly touch on in your book, Ancestral Medicine, about when you were a teenager, and as you said, first sort of feeling called dabbling in shamanism and trance work, you had this um, this this encounter with an ancestor in your paternal grandfather's line, which led to some healing of sure. your paternal grandfather. Sure, yeah. I, yeah, I was in my early 20s. It was the first time I had been introduced ritually to work with the ancestors. And my teachers at the time, uh, Becky and Crow, the Church of Earth Healing, asked me to connect with a much older ancestral guide. And I did that earlier in the day. I remember going to the spirits and saying, okay, I want to connect with my ancestors. And they were like, which ones? I'm like, I, I don't know. I hadn't gotten that far. And so I connect with my father's father's lineage. Uh, and eventually that led to asking those much older ancestral guides and teachers, is there anyone in the family that needs any help in any way? And there was. I hadn't thought about my grandfather for years. He had died when I was seven, my dad's dad. And I didn't learn until I was a teenager that it was from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And the ancestors brought me to him and they wanted to assist him. They did assist him and help to piece him back together. You'd think of it as a kind of post-mortem soul retrieval or repair of his energy body. He shot himself in the abdomen and, uh, Helped him to get oriented to the fact that he was dead because he was in a state of confusion still, even though it had been um, some years since he passed. And helped him to transition to join the other well ancestors. It happened relatively quickly, but it was very impactful for me. I'm like, what was that? Because that was that just connected dots in a major way in terms of my experience of family healing, trauma, identity, all that. Like, what just happened? And it set me on a path of really valuing the connections between family, culture, spirit work, ancestry, all that, and seeing, uh, starting to have a sensibility for intergenerational trauma and all that. Some of that would come later with the psychology training. But one, one of the things that I'd like to highlight from that story about my grandfather and he's well now he said to me I, I felt bad at times speaking of him as like you know the poster child for like ancestral healing because is he's not defined by the way he died he was very identified as many men are with work and productivity and he had emphysema so he felt um you know not valuable as a person and he shot himself 70 years later to the day that his grandfather died and his father my great 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 grandfather died in a rebel prison camp he was captured in the civil war martin four and probably of dysentery and the much older ancestral guides showed me that 
uh, images of like tribal Germanic peoples being run through in the abdomen with a sword from Roman um, armies. And so there's this theme of men taking a, a kind of blow or a hit to the, the belly. And they show me that this is the same moment in time that German, you know, Germania is being overrun by Rome, that my great times three grandfathers being captured and killed essentially in a rebel prison camp. My grandfather, his son's dying of acute indigestion on his birth certificate or his death certificate, sorry. And like, who dies of that? But he had a stomach condition and my grandfather shooting himself in the abdomen. Same moment in time that were made of story. And until we can get to the root of the story, which often begins before remembered names, before this most recent cycle of colonialism and cultural disruption and immigration, voluntary and otherwise, um, before, unless we can get at the root of the story, then we're at risk of playing them out. And the story that we're made of is often literally physical. It, oh, sure. In yeah. the physical body. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, the a lot of people don't have an ancestor altar, then that's fine. But this body is the shrine. Mm -hmm. This is where they live. These bones are their bones. We're not separate from them. Humans are funny, man. We, we're a piece of work because humans need a lot of work to not turn out bad. And one of the kinds of things that's really important to culturally teach and reinforce is our uh, embeddedness, our interdependence, our inseparability from others. If not, then people can ethically, they'll, they'll think they can get away with all kinds of stuff. And when you can't really, it catches up with you. And the ancestors and work with them teach us about our inseparability from lineage and our accountability to our elders, even if our living family is a mess, which, you know, it's like that sometimes. But there's some, we, we crave accountability. Whether or not we own that, there's a kind of intimacy and being met and being seen that comes from being accountable. And we can't have love and healthy relationships and all that without accountability. And our ancestors, because they embody this collective uh, accountability or morality, um, part of the longing to come back into connection with them is to have some kind of reference point for how to be or where to navigate. And they they bring that. The, they, the ancestors are like the human totem. They're the collective wisdom of our species and all of its beauty and unresolved pain and trauma. And so they bring wisdom on how to embody our humanity in a healthy way. Um, that story also makes me think of this idea that comes up in a lot of ancestral writings and that just comes up when you start doing the work, which is that it time kind of collapses when you're in communion with your ancestors. Yeah, it's like that. And it's important to be able to put on your name and remember your phone number and remember to eat and stuff. <laughs> but usually people don't have trouble with that. And 
yeah, time time is weird. It's bendy. And we are asked by our ancestors to embody and restore to the lineage different blessings that at times have been dormant for a thousand, two thousand years, more sometimes. A lot of the gifts that people express in their life are unconscious, positive inheritances from their ancestors. And it's fine. I mean, it's it's good etiquette to actually recognize where those gifts come from and say thank you. But most importantly, people live them, and that's what matters. And, you know, we if we're living in a very constricted, narrow, linear sense of time, then it'll get shaken up when we die, at least, if not before. So if you don't do much inner work, you'll you have a chance to do it when you die and or you just stay stuck which is super painful confusing and so yeah uh, those who uh, there's something about engaging in ancestor reverence and ritual that during life when you're alive as ancestors along every one of our lineages have done at some point something about that that changes our sense of time and that conditions us to be available for our descendants or extended kin after our death. We're affirming that time is made out of relationships and this um, connectivity is other kind of connective tissue and that that's actually a deeper structure. So our ancient ancestors live in the present, not in the past. So something that you have really, I think, brought into this conversation more so than other teachers and authors that I have experienced is that not all of the dead are equally well. True. (laughs) So many of them. Yeah. Now, Now I check it out. Like, it's so basic. And I feel like such a grouchy broken record, like annoying spiritual teacher guy to harp on that all the time. But I end up feeling passionate about it because it's a question of ritual safety. And in the same way that as a therapist, I think it's really bad to sleep with your clients and people shouldn't do that. So therapists who do that, I'm like, thumbs down, don't do that. People who are like, go ancestors, invoke all your ancestors, go for it. I'm like, why would you do that? Don't do that. That's not safe. So the if I said, hey, Amber, like not all living humans are equally safe, you're like, wow, that's deep. Like, the, you know, we really needed to unpackage that one. People get that. And and yet there's a kind of an unconscious assumption that often people haven't reflected on, which is fine. I don't mean to be judgy about it, that dying just automatically makes you wise and kind and loving. And it doesn't. It just means you're not incarnate anymore. The body, it doesn't work for your consciousness to inhabit that body. It's not functioning. So then what? You can change. You can become well. But that doesn't happen automatically. And we tend to be terrible about it culturally. People think the funerals are for the living. Well, they're also for the living. But perhaps most importantly, they're to make sure the dead get a good send-off and that they are on a track to be a well-seated ancestor. The death of the body is a rite of passage that 
doesn't really complete until one is a well-seated ancestor and has embraced or at least been accepted into training in their new status. And so these to, to me, because I've been living with it, and for cultures that have been living with it, these kinds of things seem really basic. But because a lot of the frameworks have been lost in modern Western culture, then it's like, oh, geez. Like sometimes people hear that and they're like, this makes sense. Could it be that the disturbing forces I remember from my childhood in the house growing up were unwell ancestors or ghosts that hadn't left? Oh, yeah, totally. The ghosts, the ones who don't leave, they can be a source of real disruption, illness, disturbance, bad feelings, bad actions, premature death, things like that. It sounds a little dramatic, but it's just a, it's more of an ecological lens. It's not saying they're evil. They're just eating as well. And if you have 20 raccoons that live in your house, it's going to create a different vibe. So they're not evil. They're just like secure the food. So, yeah, there's a whole thing. We're, we're pickled in ghostiness in the West, especially. So you have a blind spot around it. Mm-hmm. But just ignoring it doesn't make it go away. I think of this in my family in terms of addiction and how incredibly strongly addicted to alcohol my dad is and has been for three decades. And the last time I saw him, and I know his dad was an alcoholic, I know his dad was an alcoholic, but the last time I saw him and we were talking about it, he said, you know, I just found out that my great-grandfather was an alcoholic too. And I could see, and I I believe, I could see how he's hooked into that story, and Mm -hmm. he feels faded, but I also see that it's very real. It's very real how deeply entrenched this hard alcoholism is not only in their genes but like you like there's these ghosts these ghosts haunt him they haunt him i see it in him all the time he moved back to his ancestral home and he will not leave even though it's so uncomfortable for him and even though i'm like dad i'm here with your granddaughters and i'm inviting you to come be with us and live with your descendants and at some point i realized no he he like he feels like he he can't break free of his ancestors and so he needs to be there in that home with them doing what they did yeah, for sure. That's sad. That's tough. And it's possible. I mean, you could if you chose to because they're your shared ancestors. Make sure that his father and his father and his father and all the men before him are deeply well in spirit, healed, no longer alcoholic, like in a really good way, no longer drinking through him. Mm. And it's like taking away the firewood for someone's you know, dysfunctional bonfire. And it doesn't mean they can't still do their thing and make what choices they're making, but there's less intergenerational momentum around it. And I, I do think addiction in general is one way in which the hunger of the dead move through the bodies of the living in a way that is really compelling for the living. It's very intimate. Mm-hmm. It's intimate to have ghosts up in your body and in your space. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of unhelpful possession state. And possession states can be ecstatic and awesome and helpful or other than that. A lot of the really creepy style harm that plays out from humans toward other humans involves an element of 
less well energy ghosts or other things inhabiting humans and yeah so it's it's compelling there's an intimacy when and not to speak for him and presume to know but generally speaking from what you're describing there's a kind of communion with the ancestors that i imagine he may feel when drinking with them and for them and that intimacy can be found in other ways but it needs to be um you know addressed in layers some of that stuff you could do though yeah mm-hmm. yeah thank you I, I think that's absolutely true of him i think all of my interest in ancestry came from him i think he's an ancestral story keeper and that he passed that on to me in a way and you're absolutely right it's a form of communion for him yeah and a lot of people who struggle with addiction are super sensitive and empathic uh, he is uh, and just like don't know what to do with their with their bad selves. It's like <laughs> I got no shell. I got to self medicate. I don't yeah. know what else to do. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And especially men in this culture who are very empathic and sensitive and are taught to stuff it. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Also that. Yeah. So this reminds me of something else that you say. This that speaks to smaller individual stories like this, but also to bigger um, cultural stories, which is that our sufferings are not our own personal shortcomings. Yeah, sure. I see very little at this point as a personal problem. I trained as a therapist, and now it depends who you're talking to, but a good number of therapists will tend to frame one's struggles as personal you know, the advantage of that is that, like, oh, it's my personal trouble. I can have leverage over it. Okay, sounds good. You know, I, I am a fan of being self-responsible. And yet, if we ignore how profound the impact of racism, white supremacy, and in a way that also hurts white people, like, differently, it's bad for white people's souls to be racist. And... And classism, income inequality, exploitative capitalism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, colonialism, like religious intolerance, go down the litany of troubles that we're culturally dealing with. These kinds of toxicities are hard on the soul and they're hard on the body. They're sometimes fatal for bodies and families. And to suggest that those aren't profound is to overlook the condition that we're living in and I I tend to see a lot of those uh, systemic troubles through a lens of of ancestry that they're in their unmetabolized ancestral pain and intergenerational toxicity that also have become expressed through systems Uh, because if we're going to talk about racism sexism etc we need to make sure that we don't frame it as just a interpersonal thing. Uh, the, the bulk of it really is systemic in a lot of ways, uh, like institutions and such. But even those are ancestral houses and creations. So to exclude the ancestors from the attempt to clean up and resolve those troubles is a, is a mistake. For one, the very body of the troubled dead, the ghosts, are part of what sustained the trouble. And on the other hand, the dead who are more well are an, a profound resource for transforming the trouble. And this is important. So it's not just the dead who behaved well during life. 
It's not just let me look to my, you know, abolitionist, anti-racist, progressive white ancestors. Awesome, for sure, honor them. But, and you know, ritually speaking, it's possible somebody has good politics, but their soul is a hot mess. And they're not actually very safe around the kids after death. And it's also possible that someone who had terrible politics during life dies and is like, wow, I was a loser. I want to do better. How do I do better? And the, and the grandmas and grandpas are like, well, you need to start helping out these people, these causes, whatever. And then they get it. They do better. So the dead change. And this requires the living to have a framework for forgiveness and ongoing relationship to allow for these changes to happen. But yeah, there's... Uh, there's a lot to be said about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, something that I picked up in one of your talks related to this, too, is you said something about how this cultural damage from colonialization, patriarchy, etc., causes us to to brush off our ancestors and anything that's not an embodied human right now as not real. So not only do we have all these problems, you know, uh, arising from everything that you just talked about, but one of these deeper ones that's so invisible is that we don't like believe in the ancestors anymore. Sure. That is a function of damage from colonialism as I see it. And as someone of Northern Western European lineages, just speaking from my own position in that regard it's been over a thousand years i'm pretty sure in more or less all of my lineages since any of my ancestors had a framework during their time on earth for ancestor reverence and ritual a thousand years to have the lines be down so at least let's say 40 generations at least and we see like as a you know a European ancestored white American, when I see that happening for Native North American tribal nations or other more intact indigenous cultures, the influence of colonialism and disruption, exploitation, etc., violence, racism, it it hits me because I, I care about people and I'm empathic, and it also hits me because it reminds me of what's the damage that's happened in my own lineages as a European ancestored person. And that can be repaired. It's important to not settle into a victimized, defeated energy. It can be repaired partly through just relearning and reclaiming a framework for ancestral engagement. And then being like, hey, ancestors, and they're like, yeah, what's up? been sitting here patiently for a thousand years how you doing mm -hmm. and and so talking about them is not the same as relating mm. some people in activist circles you know bless them I, I don't mean to generalize and it's not most people but there can at times be an element that um centers whiteness in a kind of performative guilt way and brings in the topic of ancestry, which is good, but doesn't actually engage the ancestors, talks only about them, and is only about processing one's feelings about one's ancestors, or looking at the inherited debts 
incurred because of one's ancestry, which is useful, it's sacred. But what it misses is the relationship. Like if you invite elders into your house and into the room and you sit and talk about them in front of them, that's weird. It's rude. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of actually coming into relationship with the ancestors and seeing what they have to say. They actually have quite a lot to say. They were there when shit went down. Like they know how it got broke because they participated in breaking it usually. Mm -hmm. So that can be a motivation for them to assist in fixing it. Yes. Um, you say each of our bloodlines includes thousands of years of human history with plenty of time spent as oppressor, oppressed, and every other configuration. Yeah, it's true. People love hearing that from a cisgendered white guy, <laughs> middle upper class, like PhD. It's like, I feel like I'm an apex predator in terms of my social position. <laughs> so it makes it particularly like fraught and uh, you know, uh, potentially annoying at best for for me to be the one saying, hey, no matter what your position right now, if you want to zoom out and look at the big ancestral picture, yeah, we all have lineages that have include bad behavior. That's not to minimize the real structural inequality, oppression, violence, etc. happening in the present. I, I, you know, I'm not, minim not minimizing that. I'm, I'm just saying, like, uh, to be a really whole and empowered person and to see your ancestors in their full humanity, you see that they have uh, expressed all kinds of things. Beauty, trouble, arrogance, patience, tenderness, violence, all of it. To suggest otherwise is to say that I'm not a whole person because I'm only full of violent things or only kind things or whatever. But that's not, that's just not rooted in spiritual truth. We're all those things. And I see it. It's interesting, I guess. It's, it's a kind of edgy topic, I suppose. But I see it in trips to Nigeria. And sometimes I've gone with people of African ancestry, African Americans here. And or, you know, I've hosted my Yoruba elders here in, in the United States. And Africans and African-Americans, generally speaking, tend to have a somewhat different cultural outlook on matters of race and identity and all that. And sometimes it comes up in awkward or charged ways where Africans can be insensitive to the real, like, inherited pain of African-Americans. Or African-Americans can seem to Africans like stuck or fixated on race as an aspect of identity. And so I, uh, yeah, what to say? Um, yeah, it's a big topic and can be hard to talk about and is so important to talk about. And I think of a class I was teaching on. Um, on ancestor reverence, especially in relation to herbalism at the Good Medicine Confluence earlier this year, and a, a student who just got really agitated, like how, but how can I honor or revere or even communicate with my ancestors when I know some of them were slaveholders? Uh-huh, sure. That's a, that's a great question. And 
and you know, not to be intense toward that person or whatever, but to unpackage it because something I get asked a lot. Um, we don't. Um, oh, there's so much to say. We don't <laughs> arrive at healing by exiling those who commit harms. For mm-hmm. one, even in a traditional culture that practices execution. Typically, those who are executed are also ancestralized. There are people who make sure that the community members who have earned themselves an early departure make their way to the realm of the ancestors because to fail to account for that is to birth a ghost into the community. And there's also a reversal of the order for a junior to judge uh, someone who's senior to them. So in a situation like that, I would say you want to get revenge on your slave-owning ancestors. Get to know the even older ancestors who lived before the empire and colonialism and Christianity of Rome and ask those older tribal grandmas and grandpas to step in and hold your slave-owning ancestors to account if they have not already gotten right with the spirits then you ask the older ancestors to step in and they can handle it because they're the ones in a position to do it. To just judge our ancestors is not a particularly transformative stance. It's not one that I've ever heard my different indigenous teachers or elders encourage. So it's not one that's rooted in indigenous wisdom, generally speaking, in my experience, not, not presuming to speak for all of that. But holding the dead in, in just a state of judgment permanently is, yeah, it's not that interesting. And, you know, you know, it's good to just take on the blame instead of running from it. And to identify with those ancestors, be like, yeah, we did, we, me, my people, we did all those things. You, you name it, whatever it is, we did it, not running from it. Then you can start to have a conversation. Yeah, like acknowledging it, acknowledging it, looking at it, looking hard at it, talking about it. But also, what good does it do to... I, she She just... The guilt was dripping from her. Oh, sure. I know. It's And it's encouraged at times, which is unfortunate. Right. Uh, a, a, as if holding one's people in a state of judgment actually supports the cause. If it were useful, perhaps, but it doesn't actually support transformation or healing. And I've watched young white people argue with indigenous or African people uh, that they should hold their ancestors in judgment. And I'm like, do you understand how rude you sound right now? You are telling someone who's at least twice your age, who is from an intact indigenous culture, that they also need to hold your same stance of judgment or else they don't get it. I've had people offer to explain to my Yoruba teachers why they shouldn't share their culture with non-Yoruba people like me. I'm like, are you serious? Wow. Part part of what's problematic about it is it internalizes a racially essentialized view of humanity that was generated. There are earlier roots to it, but it especially got concretized in the late 1600s in the Americas to justify the, uh, you know, upper class white people's exploitation of Africans, native people, and, and poor white people for that matter. And that notion of different races is really worth deconstructing. 
And one of the ways we break it down is we get more specific about our lineages and where we're from. Like, I'm sure I'm a white person. It's fine. And I'm of early German, English, Irish colonizer ancestry to North America from Pennsylvania and Ohio, which is more specific. And this idea of just different, like four different races, why would we want to continue to replicate a, you know, European colonizer framework for humanity? It's not kind. It's not beautiful, really. It's very uh, harsh. It doesn't mean that we minimize the impact of race. Of course not. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm saying we need to bring nuance to it. And when people are grappling to be righteous and to be redeemed from a feeling of crushing shame and guilt, nuance is a tough sell in that moment. Right. I I could tell she felt like she wasn't a true social justice advocate if she didn't hate her ancestors and herself for that. And I just want to put in that you have um, this talk called The Role of the Ancestors in Social and Earth Justice available at your website, ancestralmedicine.org slash talks, where you go very deeply into what we're talking about here. So for people who want to dive dive deeper, your grasp on the complexity of these issues, I think, is really profound. Thanks. Yeah. Just for context, it took me mm, almost a decade of doing, of supporting others in blood lineage, ancestral healing work before I started to really understand what I was looking at better. So I did a lot of work before I'm like, oh, oh, this is the cultural healing work. Weird. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And then I think I'm kind of need to go throw up for a minute Mm because I'm going to need to say this out loud. Mm -hmm. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was just nervous about all the, because it's contentious. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, hurt people hurting other people. And yeah, it's understandable, but also it can be a little rough in moments. And whatever, I don't mean to, I don't have a victim-y feeling about it. Like I'm, so many people suffer, you know, in really real ways. And there's a lot of lateral hostility and just like mean girl culture in social justice activism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, I would like to go back to another of your personal ancestral stories. I loved, I love this story. And in your book, you write about how closely ritual genealogical research and family healing can interweave. And this is specifically related to the story of your maternal grandmother's parents, unmarked grave Mm -hmm. and what you did for them. Yeah, it's good. People don't ask me about that one a lot. It was really sweet. I, I learned that my grandma, how she helped raise me. She's very, uh, we're, we're close. Our daughter is like a, returning from that lineage and I learned that her parents they were very working class like Irish Welsh um, people in uh, near Pittsburgh and they somebody in the family a distant cousin remembered where they were buried so she had the, the spot but there was a grave that wasn't marked so I knew that I needed to get a gravestone so I did and I got the you know names and dates, and also engraved on there the totemic energies, different animal spirit energies that occurred to me along the lineage of my mother's 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 father's people. 
And at the same time, when I went back to Pennsylvania to place the grave marker with my parents and some extended family in a prayer, trying not to weird out family too much, but they were also kind of into it. At that same time, the block on the research on that side of the family opened up. And it, it was, felt really clear to me that the choice to acknowledge them um, somehow opened up the knowledge that I, was previously inaccessible to me. And it was great. I got to understand some of the lineages that trace back to northern, what's now Northern Ireland and uh, other places in Europe and different you know stories and to see that many of them were buried in a nearby cemetery. But the it was instructive for me, and I've seen it again and again and again and again over the last 15 years of supporting a few thousand people through this work, how synchronicity really can light up once you're relating with the ancestors. There's so many stories of people just reaching out to them and then someone calls or then something happens or somebody discovers some family heirloom or some you know, sign comes, whatever it is. And it's one of the skills, it seems, in ancestor boot camp is to learn how to generate synchronicities for the living and how to come to them in dreams and how to make things happen. So it was a sweet example for me of making effort and being met by them in that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember realizing early on in my ancestral um, wanderings about eight years ago now that like, oh, they're, they're looking for me too. I, you know, mm-hmm. it feels like as soon as I start reaching out, they start reaching their hands forward through time to be like, yes, we're here. Oh yeah. So much like, look, we're in such danger on the planet right now. There's such, such crisis and so many of the troubles have been building and they're not even fully manifest yet. So best possible outcome is it's just really hard and we turn the corner. And so they are like shaking us awake in the burning house. They're like, you need to, to wake up now. Things need to change like urgently. You've crossed certain lines and you're continuing to cross further ones. And so there is a sense of urgency from them. There's also joy and play and, you know, all the like awesome, fun, magical things. And there's a real sense of like, you you are in danger. We are in danger together. Please wake up. It's like a child waking, you know, trying to wake up a parent that's fallen asleep at the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a sense of urgency coming, I think, to us who are embodied right now from the ancestors. Yeah. And the ancestors, remember, are very aligned with the wisdom of the earth in Yoruba culture. I'm, I'm also an initiate in uh, Ogboni society, and it's a society that gives reverence to Onile and the earth mother. And in that, um, society one of the qualities is one of like accountability or moral authority or community looking out for the health of community and 
when we give reverence to the earth, we're also saying the earth is the calabash or the container for the souls of the dead. The earth is the repository of ancestral wisdom. And the earth is witness to our interactions. The earth is the third person on the call between us right now. And the, you know, one also present when listeners access the recording. And the the earth in that way is the uh, many eyes and hearts of the ancestors whose bodies are in the earth or through ash are still in a sense in the earth. So the ancestors in that way are always present there and they're also associated with the quality of witnessing and accountability that comes with the earth as an intelligent deity. Right. I think that's something that we overlook so easily. I've talked about it a few times on this podcast and I was just struck dumb when I realized it, I don't know, a year ago or something that the ancestors are literally in the earth. Mm-hmm. They are. No, my, my first trip to Yorba land, the elder of our lineage, the Arabada Sanya Boyade, is he had just passed two weeks earlier, he's age 99, very kind senior Jedi, and he was buried in the house, as is traditional. So I slept across the hall from him. I was just in a, you know, in a room in a house, but there's also a busted up area of concrete where his body was buried in the house. And so there's something lovely and intimate about having the dead buried like under in the house where you live. And another way of framing that is these bodies are also the earth. And so the the dead who are not dead, who are the ancestors, who are also us because we're one human community, are wearing these uh, handfuls of earth that are these bodies. And so the earth also moves around and talks to itself. And um, so, yeah, so like the dead are in the earth and the ancestors are animating the earth that is these bodies. So both. Wow, right. And then when we step outside of time and take the long view, it's just like people are just earth <laughs> taking human form over and over. Totally. And it would behoove us to behave like that more uh, instead of framing ourselves as separate. You know, I, I follow the news closely. I don't know if it's good for my nervous system, but I've always, you know, I've traveled a lot and I'm a student of language and culture, and I care about politics. I vote. I I care about those things, and I think others should do. And uh, I I don't think that there are any environmental problems. They're just human behavior problems. And the human behavior problems and the legacy of them arise from a false and distorted understanding of who we are is if we understood our embeddedness like really got it we wouldn't behave in the ways that people too often behave positions of power and so i you know i almost went into environmental law as a career i'm so glad i didn't i would have been so unhappy but i was just mad about what's happening and i decided to try to leverage it in a different way. So I'm trying to help humans to do better. And 
and to remember our context and our position. But in some ways, I'm doing it out of a loyalty to the earth. Like I'm on assignment in the human neighborhood because that's where my real teacher, who is the spirit of this planet, has sent me. Um, yeah, you, you know, you've pointed out to how well um, indigenous American communities have brought ritual and ancestor reverence into their like earth justice activism. Oh yeah, totally. I think that uh, native peoples throughout the Americas, whether it's things like Standing Rock and Idle No More, like native First Nations people in North America or different um, movements in Ecuador, Bolivia, Peru, other places, um, are exemplary in understanding that ritual and the sacred and political change and communal healing are inseparable. That's, I don't say it to idealize indigenous peoples, but um, the world, generally speaking, for those who still have an, a generalized like indigenous worldview of some sort, things are less compartmentalized. And this can be seen in other places like you know, Maori people in New Zealand, some you know, spiritually tapped in folks in India, let's say, doing advocacy for rivers and um, one Giri Matai and the uh, Greenbelt movement in Kenya and other you know, kinds of ac activism in continental Africa. So there, there are examples all over the world. I'm not saying it's unique to native peoples of the Americas, but um, I think social justice type folks who are not indigenous in the Americas could learn a thing from people who are approaching activism in a more ritual-oriented way. And there are folks like, I think, Starhawk and Reclaiming Movement has that sensibility. I don't, I don't know her well, but I'm not saying there aren't people already doing that. There are. And it's encouraging. And, you know, I'm a therapist also. Some activists really could benefit from some therapy. <laughs> Bless them. And some therapists could really benefit from some activism too, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, speaking about your um, maternal grandmother's people. You said, our daughter is a returning of that lineage. Yeah, I did say that. Huh? Yeah, tell me uh, about that. Um, she's awesome. She, uh, we kind of sensed that early on. That, I mean, we knew she was going to be a girl and then we had a sex reveal party with the cake and everything where they, they make a cake and if it's blueberries inside, then it's a boy. And if it's strawberries, it's a girl. It's kind of, kind of dorky, but everyone took bets and we're like, Oh, it's a girl. So we had a big scorpion on the cake and icing just to be dramatic. Cause she's a Scorpio. But we, uh, uh, just knew through the dreams and intuition that she seemed connected to my mother's mother's side and the Irish grandmas. And, and we just felt it, my wife and I both. And our teacher in West Africa did a reading through the, uh, it's called Essentaye or Kosajaye. It's a divination done around the birth of a child. And we asked, as is customary, which lineage she's reincarnated from. 
And he's like, oh, Baba, it's his father's mother. Ifa says it's your father's mother's lineage. I'm like, yeah, that's what we thought. So it's confirmed through divination as well. And it doesn't, it's not to lock her into that or saying she has to be in a certain way, but it's good for parents to recognize that each of their children is an ancestor returning and that the children aren't, the souls of children aren't small souls. They're, they're fully, they're full grown souls, so to speak. And I mean, generally it's kind of, all kinds of things can happen, but um, children are just big souls with small bodies who, you know, poop their pants. And so the, sure, we need to help them to get reacquainted, but the, the point is that they each have their own unique gifts and medicine. And it's something, generally speaking, indigenous or animist cultures do really well, is recognize sacred difference. And not everybody is the same. To the point where not, not everyone needs the same spiritual practice. Not, not everybody needs the same whatever. You know, I had an idea. I'm like, I speak Spanish pretty well. I'm like, God, we should teach her Spanish. We should, like, do this bilingual thing. And I wanted to do it. We just decided this this week. And... But I stopped and I divined on it first. I'm like, is that what she wants? I'm excited about it. Is that actually what's going to be good for her? So yeah, I came back, yeah. So I'm like, okay, we'll do it then. But it's good to not assume what that what's right for us is right for other people. People have different needs, different taboos, different trajectories, including our children. Is it exciting, though, to think about how she may reveal more of that lineage to you as time goes on or bring you closer to them? Or are you just oh, looking totally. forward to seeing what yeah, happens? Totally. Yeah, totally. She's awesome. It's totally vulnerable to be a parent. There's so much you can't control. And it's just like having a your another heart that's outside your body. Um, and... Yeah, I I love it. I mean, it's, it's terrible for sleep, but I uh, am also excited about how she's already deepening my understanding of the ancestors just by being herself. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, this is uh, my uh, you know, my teacher when he was here brought his eldest daughter and wife last year, and somebody asked him in a talk, and we we're in Athens, Georgia. How do we honor the ancestors? And his daughter is 11, jumped in, Tolani, and she said something to the effect of, when we take care of the children, we honor the ancestors, because the children are the ancestors mm. returning. Mm. If you want to know the ancestors, take care of the children. Mm. Boom. I'm like, yeah, what she said. Yeah, I, I feel like my main form of ancestor reverence is my mothering. Because there's not a day that goes by that I'm not thinking about my ancestors as I am loving my children and loving them as good as I can as an act of honoring for my ancestors and knowing as well that my children are the future ancestors of my descendants. (laughs) Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for for doing that. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, my little one, Nixie, um, she'll be two next month. And I've, I've always felt this really deep connection with my paternal grandmother's people, the rights. I've talked about them many times on this podcast. I think I'm going to tell a story when I record the intro to this about how I really feel like they initiated me onto this ancestral path. And one ancestor on that side that I just really enjoy looking at his photos and learning about him is named Hezekiah, right? He lived in Arkansas in the 1800s and he's got Mm -hmm. this big full beard and there's these photos of him with like 60 plus family members and it says Hezekiah clan and he just looks kind. And um, I posted a Mm -hmm. photo of him in Instagram stories a few months ago and got so many people responding saying that's Nixie. Do you see Nixie in his eyes? Mm-hmm. Do you see Nixie in his face? And I was like, yes, actually I do. And that so many strangers saw it too, felt mm-hmm. really sweet and just like nourishing on this deep level. We have a tradition in Yoruba, uh, religious practice called egungum. It means, egungum means bones in Yoruba, but egungum is the ancestral medium society. And I'm, I'm an initiate in that society, and one of the things that happens is there's a colorful cloth consecrated suit that when a person steps into it, covers your body from head to toe. And so there's no way for others to know who's in the suit. And if you do know, it's taboo to reveal who that is. And part of what is conveyed is that when one is embodying the ancestors, there's an erasure or an eclipsing or a setting down temporarily of individuality. That your face, which is the face of the masquerade, is the face of the hive. That the bee is suddenly like, let me tell you, let me speak as the hive. And the voice changes when people are in mediumship mode and the ancestors speak in community. They'll come up and say stuff to people, sometimes call them out or what, you know, whatever it is, uh, offer a blessing, pray for people. And to have that communally enacted is really lovely. And there are children sometimes that are initiated to that society. So they're short little children masquerades. It's really lovely. And I think of it in your share because there's a commentary on time. Like it's Nixie and Hezekiah, um, are they expressing the same energy in the same moment? Right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a uh, way that we as humans can become a channel or even possessed in a, in a friendly way. Well, it can go both ways, but let's say in a friendly way, by the collective intelligence of the species or a bigger current, a bigger lineage within the species. I think a lot of really talented people are doing that half consciously anyways. So, yeah. Yeah. um, I want to, I want to ask you something that's really personal to me, something that came up over and over in reading your book and speaking about well ancestors and elevated ancestors and... Um, and then this thing that you talked about earlier today with your paternal grandfather and how sudden deaths and suicides can sometimes leave the departed spirit in a limbo state, in a surprised state. Mm-hmm. So, okay, this feels really vulnerable right now, and I 
probably going to cry. But my mom, um, who was my best friend with whom I was very close, died in a car accident uh, mm. a little less than three years ago, November of 2015. Mm. And mm. she was just... I'm truly the most wonderful, loving, kind person. Like, you know, the, the people use the word angel for her all the time, even before she died. And my sister and I, in the few weeks after her death, were like, whoa, like, mom was like an ascended being. You know, we just thought, we have the best mom. But like, really looking at the way she lived her life and the way she treated people and just this baseline, like, happiness and trust and loving kindness that she lived her life from damn, she was really there, even though she wasn't like spiritual, you know, in any way, really. She was, the way she lived her life was, I, you know, you know what I'm saying? I do. So this internet stranger writes me an email a couple of days after she died and is like, oh my God, you're, you know, your mom's soul is in limbo. You have to do this Native American ritual and that Chinese prayer. And, and I was just like, whoa, chick, like, really? you don't, don't throw that at someone you don't even know. And I talked to my sister and my mom's mom, who's still living now, you know, in her 90s when she lost her baby girl. And I was like, do you guys, you know, there's this idea that when souls die suddenly, they're lost. And do you guys feel like that? And both of them said, not at all. And I felt the same way. Like, I just feel like the moment of impact, she was at peace. Yeah. And I, I but I don't get that reflected back to me in anything that I see or read. And so I guess I, I want... <laughs> I want you to uh, affirm me, Daniel. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm not just being um, whatever uh, hospitable by agreeing with you. It's actually how I see it. And, of course, kindness on your mom's passing in that way so suddenly. And, look, the, the most important way that we prepare for death is to be ethical mm-hmm. and to be kind. Exactly. You could take someone who's kind and ethical and has like a real soul level backbone of good character and uh, cause them to die very slowly and painfully and they would probably still transition okay. And you could take someone who's, you know, very conflicted and and if they haven't addressed that, then it might slow their journey after death. So it's, uh, if people die in violent or surprising ways, it... Um, it can, uh, it, it's just one factor and it, it's, yeah, there's no rule about that. There's some people would make a rule about suicides. I'm like, I, I think that when people take their own life, usually it's surprising to them because usually they have a view that it's going to end things and it doesn't actually end them. It just changes them. Right. And, and so once that initial surprise has passed, some people work it out. Some are kind of work it out, but slowly. Some contract quite strongly and don't work it out at all. So it really, it depends. It's so hard to generalize. And, but yeah, especially if people are loved, if people live an ethical life and they're loved, they're almost certainly going to be fine. Right. Like nobody felt like they had any unfinished business with her. Nobody. And I, I, I mean, I was almost like floating on air those few first few weeks after her death because I felt so blessed to have someone like that be my immediate ancestor, to have that person be my mother. It's possible on some half conscious or soul level that, 
she was just ready to work from a different position. Mm-hmm. And I mean, who knows? It's not, I don't like to, it's not my place to make any specific story about it. But um, I, I guess what I, I, I don't hear you doing this, but I, I hear culturally sometimes people say that, oh, so-and-so died young or they died too soon. I was like, did they die too soon? If a child dies at age two, is that too soon? Or is that the duration of their life? Mm-hmm. I don't, uh, I think it's best to not add a story of how it should be on top of very soul level movements, but to have humility and kind of openness and be like, okay, this is super sad and it's what's happening and how do we work with it? Yeah. Yeah, I think we were really able to do that as a family after she passed too. And and really, as you sort of hinted at, like the number of blessings that have come into my life since she passed as a direct result of her passing is almost overwhelming. Like my life wouldn't be what it is at all right now if she hadn't died when she did like she did, which yeah. is it's so hard to wrap my mind around sometimes how much good could have come from losing the person I loved the most like I did. And I feel also very lucky to be in this place where, you know, with your work and a lot of other ancestor work, it's like, oh, you might reach a far back ancestor who gives you these blessings. But I just I hadn't heard of anyone else having this experience that I've had with your parent after they after they passed. The experience of uh, which part just of, of, like, uh, just, uh, of them being in such excellent condition yes exactly oh, having yeah, that yeah. like ascended ascended ancestor be your immediate parent oh sure look the if it's already like that fantastic the work like I'm not saying you're asking for this but if you were to approach this kind of work and you were like okay what does it look like to work with my mother's mother's lineage my mother's still alive she seems quite, or I'm sorry, my mother's passed. She seems quite well. My grandmother's still alive. It would look like making sure your great grandmother and all the women on back before her to pre-Christian grandmas, and uh, you know, I'm guessing somewhere in Europe, um, are deeply well in spirit, and that they're harm, you know, they're connected with one another, and also they're connected with your mother in spirit. That your mother not only is deeply well but also is in great relationship with her grandmother and all of the uh, ancient witchy grandmas well before her. <laughs> yeah, there's some work we could do with her grandmother for sure. Yeah, so there's the, the approach that I take is lineage-based. And the uh, an indicator of a healthy lineage or bloodline is that any individual along that lineage can wear the face of the lineage. Like any bee can speak for the hive. Any one individual can function like the mask of the group energy and you know often it's a mix often like some are more well than others so that's where the work is that's where the ritual repair and healing work happens we call in the old grandmas and grandpas and be like look we got a problem down here things got off track it's a mess it's painful please help they're like oh we thought you'd never ask (laughs) they're polite and people why didn't they help before did you ask? No. Okay. Well, ask. See what happens. Mm-hmm. So my mom can be that face for that lineage for me. For sure. And she, I mean, she already is. Yeah. I, this is kind of dorky, but I use a one to ten scale. And so 
what you're describing is someone who's like a seven or an eight, like the one to three range are the really funky ghosts. The four to six are like the, uh, not fractured or fragmented, but not awesome. Like nice people who, you know, if pressed would probably do the wrong thing. And the seven to 10 range are the really safe, well ones. Like they'd be safe around the kids that they're, they're good. But you get into like eight, nine, that's like, oh, these are potent. I feel a little dizzy to think about them like magical ancient grandmas or, you know, something that's very like there's substance there. And and so you, when you speak of your experience of your mother, I in that way of kind of organizing the information, I think of her as like someone who's quite well in spirit, but she may not necessarily be super tapped into this group consciousness and the ancient earth connected essentially indigenous grandmas she might be i don't presume to know but um so sometimes things can go from quite good to amazing yeah thank you (laughs) my my heart needed that today today would have been she and her husband's 10th wedding anniversary and Mm. their wedding was just one of the most joyful days of all of our lives so it's really heavy on Mm -hmm. me and i appreciate you walking me through that um I, i wanted to touch on one last thing before we wrap up and so I was a religious studies major and yeah, me too. yeah and a lot of so anthropology <laughs> I know but look at us now you know I mean it I very know, much that's what ties I say in to my parents. I'm like, I know uh-huh. I know that's what I say to myself and I'm like that was right. wasted years of my life um so I just remember so clearly you know learning about animism and ancestor reverence as like these bygone primitive belief systems and now, of course, this is mostly where like my work is and the people that I'm talking to on this podcast and surrounding myself with. So I'd like you to speak about sort of the overlap or the, the intertwining between animism and ancestral reverence and it's probably to explain to a lot of people what animism is. Yeah, sure. Like the three-minute version. I Yeah, I'm an animist, which is a way of saying... My worldview is that um, living humans are just one kind of person. There are many other kinds of people. Some are human-shaped, like the ancestors, but not incarnate right now. Some are other than human, like the animals, plants, fungi, mountains, rivers. Some are deities. Some are physically perceivable by us. Some not so much. But there are many, many other kinds of people with diversely shaped bodies and consciousness. And we are embedded in these relationships. And it's incumbent upon us if we want to be a a grown-up, essentially, or a, a quality person, to try to be respectful with these other relationships that we depend on to live that are a source of, you know, guidance, healing, joy, community, all kinds of things. And that seems very basic to me, but that's not the frame that modern Western culture is predicated upon. Modern Western culture basically says only living humans, and not even all of them. It's like mostly living white, male, cisgendered, middle, upper class, Christian humans, or whatever the oppressive garbage storyline is um, are fully real and then it kind of goes down from there so 
that's how generalizing many, not all, but many people who are indigenous people, there's about 350 million, depending on how you think of that legally and politically. Um, it's how many indigenous people traditionally see the world as a very relational view that respects the other than humans. And it's how a lot of people that are into shamanism, which is a complicated kind of topic and word, tend to see the world is respect for the what we think of as nature. But nature is a is kind of a silly concept. But the uh, you know the the spirits or the people whose bodies are nature um, are are the focus in a lot of shamanism and. So animism is a way of talking about just coming back into reconnection that doesn't, it's not off-putting to indigenous people and it respects the sovereignty and the history of colonialism and all that. And it just says anybody who cares to can behave in a more relational way. And that's not only um, kind of interesting and spiritual or whatever, it's very adaptive at this point in history and very pragmatic and sensible. And um, scientific even and gets better results and it means that you know western educated white people who are probably the most culturally disconnected uh, humans on earth in terms of uh, historical distance from animist worldviews um, for people of that background like myself to come back into a animist frame for life is uh, it's encouraging. I'd, I'd like to see others pick it up more. But the longing that people have for this kind of generalized indigenous something, the thing that moves people to drive to Standing Rock or to, um, you know, find a sweat lodge or to do whatever it is to lick psychedelic toads or whatever like the longing for reconnection that drives people to do all kinds of interesting things is a instinct to come back into relationship with the rest of life or with the the others and they want that too of course they they they're shaking us the ones shaking us to wake up are not just the ancestors they're also the you know, orangutans and the rare orchids and the deep sea, you know, octopus that's like, we're dying because of the bad dream you're having. If you would be so kind as to wake up, we would love to enjoy your company in some other kind of configuration than what's happening now. So animism comes with a set of understandings and even rituals and tools for re-enlivening those relationships with the other than humans that we are already embedded in. We're just playing them out less consciously right now. Well, I would add here that folks who want to go deeper into everything we talked about today will find so much in your book, Ancestral Medicine. Um, I mean, you know, we didn't talk specifically about rituals to to facilitate these connections, but you go very deeply into that in your book, on your website. And so please tell people too more about where they can find you and what you've got coming up. Yeah, sure. The main place is ancestralmedicine.org. And there are 
I'm guiding. Uh, well, we'll have happened by the time the interview's out, but I am uh, guiding trainings next year in Australia, and I believe in Bali and Europe, and online course in ancestral lineage healing starting this December. It's a full length course. It's a great way to dive in with the practice if you're not local to one of the trainings. And there's a directory now of practitioners. There's 30 so far, 32 people who have my blessing to guide this work with others. They're all under my supervision. They have my support. And and so I don't do session work with folks anymore, but I train people on how to guide this work. And that's been very satisfying. And, and that it also means that if people want to work with someone who's trans or speaks Spanish or is, you know, of African ancestry or whatever it is, that there's probably someone uh, in the organization who would be more of a cultural match if folks need that for, you know, just safety and feeling met. And, uh, yeah, but check out ancestralmedicine.org. You're welcome to connect on Facebook and all the social media things. And check out some of the online learning. And there's hours of free interviews on my site. And yeah, and the book. So. Yeah, you've got a lot out there. And um, thank you so much for your work and for talking to me today, Daniel. Thanks so much, Amber. It's, it's been good. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, handmade herbal medicines, past podcast episodes, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, I invite you to click the purple banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, which healing herb is your plant familiar It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. There's some killer rewards there, um, exclusive content, access to online courses, free, beautiful, downloadable eBooks, coupon codes, giveaways, and just amazing gifts provided by past guests of the podcast. All of that stuff is at the $2 a month level. Um, For a little more, you can access my herbal ebook or my small online course. And that's all there as a thank you, a huge thank you from me and from my guests for listening, for supporting this work. I love figuring out what I can give to people on Patreon. It's so fun. And I love that Patreon makes it that you can um, contribute for such a small amount a month. I'm a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom and adding this project into my life has been a questionable move for sure, but I love doing it and I love the feedback that I get from you all. And I just pray that the Patreon continues to allow me the financial wiggle room to keep on doing it while giving back to everyone who's listening. Um, If you're unable to do that, or if you'd like to support further, I would love it if you would subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would review the podcast on iTunes too, really helps get it into other ears and it means so much to me when I read those reviews. It's um, 
like the highlight of my week when I check them and see new ones and people are amazing. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much. The music that opens and closes the show is by Marie Sue, M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X. It's from her song Wild Eyes, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Thank you so much. And I look forward to next time.